<laughs> All right, we got some excitement. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Father, we want to lift up to you your entire kingdom this evening. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, and everywhere that there is a presence of your spirit in a church, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in the Middle East, South America, North America, Australia, Lord, we lift up your whole body this evening. We want to remember that we are not the only church in America, but that you have a massive, massive kingdom filled with many languages and people. And Father, many of them are struggling. They're facing opposition every single day. They're struggling to keep the walls built. They're struggling to move on. Lord, we pray for them that you would give them power in that persecution, that your gospel will flourish. Lord, we pray for your missionaries who are out there on those fields, especially the ones that have come from our midst here, that you provide for their every need. Lord, that you encourage them when they're down. And God, that you teach them how to pray. And so with that, we offer up to you a youth call and Ignite, both of those mission groups. And we pray for their health. We pray for their usefulness for your kingdom and um, continue to unify them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. Ezra and Nehemiah go together in the Hebrew Bible. There was no necessarily a distinction seen in their mind. It's all one story written by the same author. So you don't have Ezra writing one. You don't have Nehemiah writing another. However, you do have Nehemiah's actual words on these pages. He says things like, I did this, we did that. So what you have is a general editor who has compiled memoirs from Ezra and Nehemiah and has compiled a book with these two leaders. Um, most people think that Ezra is the one responsible for both of these works. He would have taken Nehemiah's writings, compiled them together, did a few shuffling, editing, adding in some explanatory notes, and then we have this work that is designed to teach the returnees how to go forward in life, just like Chronicles was aimed at the people that returned from exile, getting them back on track in their life, and being the covenant people, and expanding God's glory from their nucleus in Jerusalem. So, once again, we're at that stage where we're focusing on those who've come back from the exile, and it's kind of like, what do we do I want you to imagine if Cuba suddenly, um, you know, the communism was run out of there and it became a better place to be, um, and America said, hey, all you people that are from Cuba living in Florida, just go back to Cuba. Um, how many people would actually go back to Cuba, to a place that's run down a little bit, the prosperity is as good as it is here in America? You would have some people who are devoted to their land and would go back but the majority of them aren't going to want to go. They've made their life in America. They, they're living well here. And it's a lot like what's happening with Israel at this time is they've made a life in Persia, and they're living well. Many of them are successful. They're, they're, 
they, they don't even remember the land. Some of them have been born in Persia. And then suddenly Cyrus comes on the scene, we saw in Ezra 1, and says, you guys are free to go back to your land. How many of them are actually going to be excited about going back? Not the majority. So that's what we have in the land of Israel presently in our book, is we have what you call a remnant. It's a small gathering of Jewish people who have decided to go back to the land because they value and cherish the covenant that they have with God and they see their importance of being there. So they are back. So that's what we have here as we open up Nehemiah. We're continuing the story of Ezra. Um, I wanna, what I want to do is explain here the reason for Nehemiah in the biblical canon. Why is Nehemiah in there? What purpose does it serve in the canon? And then we'll go... Um, overview the five chapters, and I'm going to come back and touch on why walls. Why are the walls big enough of a deal that there are, there's a, an entire book devoted to Nehemiah's building the walls. So that's where we're going to go tonight. So why is Nehemiah in the biblical canon? We believe that the original Old Testament scriptures in the Jewish context, the ones that they possessed, that they divided them into three categories. In the English, we would categorize those as law, prophets, and writings. Law, you'd have the first five books we're familiar with because, you know, you got all the laws in there. Moses gave them to the people. In the prophets, this one might surprise you a little bit more, is you'd have people like Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You'd have the kings, you would have, um, of course, the prophets. So those historical books, as well as the prophets, were all considered the works of the prophets. And then you'd go into the writings, which included books like Esther, um, Song of Solomon, uh, Lamentations, of course, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job. But surprisingly, Daniel was considered part of the writings, not part of the prophets. And you would also then include Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as Chronicles, in this section of the writings. So you have those three categories. It would be ordered very, not a whole lot differently, but a little bit differently than our Old Testament Bible is ordered. And the reason I'm showing you this is because in the way that they had the Bible structured, it's extremely neat the way that it works. Um, what you had were in, you would have the narrative of the biblical story. So the law and the first part of the prophets were all what you call the primeval history. That would take you from Genesis all the way on through Kings. All of that is the history of Israel, the beginning of it. And this would be one whole chunk of the B Old Testament. Then an almost equal portion of that chunk is over here, and you'd have um, the rest of the prophets and that's after Kings and on. So you have like all like Isaiah and all those prophets. And then the writings were all part of what they would consider a commentary on the history of Israel. So you have the primeval history from Genesis through Kings, and then you've got all these writings and the other prophets. They divided the prophets into former prophets and latter prophets. So the former prophets would be... Um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And then the latter prophets are what we think of actual prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. 
And so the Psalms and all those, they're commentating upon the history that has been ordered through kings. Then you have a bunch of commentary. They're about equally the same in weight in their Bible. And then at the very end, after the history, the commentary, you'd go back to the history about what happened to them when they came back from exile. And there, there you have Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So those books pick back up the narrative that got cut off for all this commentary, and then it picks it back up. So we're at the very tail end of the Old Testament chronologically and in the Hebrew Bible, um, the way that they ordered the books. We're at the end. So we're picking back up a vast history that has writings and writings of poetry and commentary and prophets and all sorts of things that are all talking about the original history. And so now we're picking it up, back up. And so these last writings, Nehemiah here in this part, is serving a theological purpose of telling these people who have, they know their history, they know what all the commentaries have said about their downfall and about how much God loves them, and now they're coming back and they're wondering, what now? What's our place? What are we to do? And so that's why these, this section, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, they're there to encourage them you guys are still God's people, and God still wants to magnify his name through you. So pick up as you were, but learn the lessons of what sent you into captivity, and you shall be good. So this is what they, um, part of the message of Nehemiah. Now, I'll get more into exactly what his message is in just a second. Actually, why don't I just tell you right now? I think what Nehemiah with Ezra wants to communicate this, this co-divide, uh, you know, Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah, this one work. What they want to tell those who've returned from exile is that God's glorification comes through our sanctification. His glorification comes from our sanctification. Or, put another way, God is going to look bigger, and his goal for Israel's existence is going to be accomplished when they separate themselves from the cultures surrounding them. So Ezra and Nehemiah want them to come back, and they want to tell them, you're back, don't mess up like your forefathers did in infiltrating yourself with the other cultures, in intermarrying with their daughters or their sons so that you become um, worshipers of their gods, and then um, you are also, you're like combining this worship thing, this hybrid. You're completely changing the covenant life to work with your neighbors. And Ezra and Nehemiah want to say, okay, now that you're back and you've been punished because you did incorporate all that, it's time that you separate yourself from that. Um, the New Testament term would be, be sanctified. Be set apart from worldliness and sin and become God's special people. And as you do that, you're going to glorify him or you're going to fulfill the purpose for which he sent you back to Jerusalem. So that's, I think, the theological message for Ezra and Nehemiah and what they want to communicate to them. Now, let's just sweep over the first five chapters and look at what's happening so that we can then go back and look at why walls are such a big deal in this book. What we have in chapter one is Nehemiah. He is a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is king of Persia. Persia owns the world at this time. They kicked out the Babylonians who did own the world and kicked Israel out of Israel. 
um, they, the Persians rose up and kicked Babylon out, so they're now the global empire. And Artaxerxes is presently the king. His father, Xerxes, we know from secular history very well because he was involved in a lot of important battles with the Greeks. Um, battles such as Thermopylae, uh, Salamis, and Marathon. Those are three pretty significant battles in Greek history, and Xerxes was the leader of those battles. So we know that our Xerxes is his son. So we're like rooted right here in secular history. And Nehemiah is his most trusted advisor as a cupbearer would be. Somebody you're very close with, you trust a lot, because what they did is they made sure your food wasn't poisoned. And you wanted to be sure that he wasn't going to be bought off by someone who did want to poison the king. So you would definitely trust them. Close relationship. Nehemiah is in a privileged position. <laughs> Getting to eat from the king's table all the time isn't a bad deal anyways. So he's in the king's court, and he has a brother. We don't know if he's blood-related or just merely another Jew. But he comes, and he gives a report. He's coming back from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah sees him, and he asks him about Jerusalem. He's not just in his little bubble over there in Persia. He's concerned with the Jews on the global scale. And he wants to know, hey, someone from Jerusalem, how are our brothers doing in Jerusalem? And he tells him that it's not good. The walls are all burned down. There are heaps of rubble. There's no walls whatsoever. I mean, the temple's up, yay, but there's no wall. The city's an embarrassment. And Nehemiah feels the pain for them. And i just like to stop for a second and point out that Nehemiah cared about God's people beyond his realm of influence. He was concerned about the Jews in Jerusalem as well as in Persia. Had another one come from some other corner of the earth, you would have asked them, how are the Jews doing there? And I think, especially in America, we, we get in our Christian um, church bubble and we, we're often, I don't know why this is, but we almost think that we are the church in America. And really, the church in China, if we ever think about it, it's like an afterthought of like, oh yeah, they're kind of, they're way behind us. They're coming along like all the baby Christians. And we kind of have this like superiority complex when it comes to American church. Like we are God's people. As if we replaced Israel or something. But that is not the way Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus taught us to pray for us. Um, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debt. And he told us to pray for his kingdom to come. The kingdom is, is bigger than us in America. It, it goes to Australia. It goes to Asia, to Europe, to Africa. It's everywhere. We are intricately connected with these people. And Revelation 5, I think, is one of the climaxes of the Bible where it talks about a, a huge, massive, myriads upon myriads worshiping Jesus and it says that there were those worshiping him from every tribe, tongue, and language. We are all unified by one blood. That's the blood of Jesus who purchased us. We're a huge family. And Lord, help us not to just think about the American Christian church, but to begin to pray for those in China. They are doing way better than we are, and they need our prayers desperately as they're persecuted and they're on fire and the church in Europe, we need to pray for the hard hearts out there. I mean, to be a Christian out there is really something these days. You're stand, you're, we think we're the far and the few in America. In Europe, 
it's like to find another Christian, I guess, is like finding um, a four-leaf clover or something. And then in Africa, you know, we got passionate brothers and sisters. And then in the Middle East, we have is, um, people f- turning from Islam to Christianity. And we, we need to pray for the kingdom. As Nehemiah had concern for them, our concern goes out to them. And we've got, what now, Mike, three missionaries from here? Three. Um, maybe they need financial support, prayer support, encouragement, correspondence. You know, keep in touch with these people that are out there building the kingdom of Christ. And we can have a part in that, maybe not called there, but through our giving or our helping, we can definitely play a part in that. So that's Nehemiah, concerned about the worldwide body of God, the Jews in this context. And he asks, and he finds out it's not doing good. So he prays. He prays about it. He feels such a tug that I want to help this. I want to pray for it. So he prays, and he prays, and he gets the sense that this is God's call for him to go. So he's waiting four months for an opportunity to talk to the king. Four months. He says he prays day and night. Four months go by, and finally there's an opportunity before the king. Four months. He's praying day and night. Why does God delay sometimes in our prayers? Why is it that we have to pray for things over and over, and it seems like nothing's ever going to happen? And why in Nehemiah's case did it take four months Chapter 1 says it was the month of Chislev. Chapter 2 says it's the month of Nisan, which is four months down the road. Why? I mean, can't God, didn't God hear him the first time? He definitely did. But I think the reason that God will delay in revealing his will through a prayer or giving us that immediate answer is he wants to see how much we care about what we're asking for or praying for. If I care, I will be in prayer. And Nehemiah, for four months, God tested, Nehemiah, do you really want to go to Jerusalem? Is this really on your heart to help the people? And man, you can think so right away. Yes, that's me. And he prays about it for a week, and everything opens up, and he gets there and finds out, oh, I don't really care about this. I want to get out of here. This is harder than I thought. But if for four months he's still in prayer, seeking opportunity, and the people are weighing so heavily on his heart that even four months later he still has a sad countenance, then he knows, because God put him through the test, that he definitely has a call for them because four months of day and night praying did not wane his passion for going. (laughs) His prayer did not diminish because his care was not finished. He cared desperately for Jerusalem. Four months proved that. And at the end of four months, he's still of sad countenance to the point that the king has to ask him, what's up, dude? You haven't smiled here for a while. Something fishy's going on. So he asks him, and Nehemiah, (laughs) you would think, okay, in verse, I think it's three, he confesses that he was very afraid when the king asked. You would think, being close to the king, that this wouldn't be too big of a deal. And especially being in front of the king of kings for four months and then coming before the king of Persia, a little guy, this is no big deal. You've been with the big guy, it's easier to be with the small guy. Yet he confesses in honesty that he was a little bit afraid. Um, Andrew Murray says this about prayer in his book, Lord Teach Us to Pray. Andrew Murray says, Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, only how to pray. 
He did not speak much of what was needed to preach well, but much of praying well. To know how to speak to God is more than knowing how to speak to man. It's not power with men, but power with God. That is the first thing. And there's Nehemiah learning how to pray <laughs> four months with God, and he, he's totally prepped to talk to man. He should be, because he's learned to be with God, power through God, then power with man. But he's scared. What, how is that possible? Well, I think a little bit of history at this point will help us understand Nehemiah's terror. Like I said earlier, this is Artaxerxes here sitting on the throne, most powerful man on earth, and his father was King Xerxes. And like I said, Xerxes went to battle against the Greeks. He lost on land in um, Marathon. He lost at sea in Salamis, and the Greeks have gained independence. And there's a little bit of turbulence now in the whole Mediterranean area and in the whole empire, and it was now passed on to his son, Artaxerxes, our present king, to maintain control of the empire. That's his goal. Well, Artaxerxes had to deal with more turbulence. The, um, the Athenians decided to join up with the Egyptians. So they're coming from both sides, and they're rebelling against Persia. And so they're tag-teaming together. What Artaxerxes does to stop the Athenians is he hires their arch-rivals, the Spartans, to battle against the Athenians, and he takes care of that. And then Egypt, when, he sees, when they see that half of their army back down, Egypt decides to back down, and Artaxerxes was able to keep the tight lid on things, and everything was quiet for a while. But he still knows that there's this mean Egypt brewing down there. Meanwhile, his, one of his satraps, which is basically, that's their phrase for a glorified governor who owned like a lot of land, um, he was in the Transjordan area, kind of the Canaan area on the Bible map, and he decided to rebel against Persia. Well, that got squashed too, and that was four years before our scene here in Nehemiah chapter 2. So Artaxerxes is well aware of the turbulence in Canaan and below that in Egypt, that he's got these two regions that are unhappy. He wants to make them happy. So when Nehemiah comes to him and asks, hey, I've got a problem in Jerusalem. It's my people. It's where my fathers are buried. I want to help that place. Oh, what do you, you want to do to Jerusalem? Raise an army to rebel against me? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I want to build the city walls. They're wrecked. And Artaxerxes is thinking, if Jerusalem's fortified, this might be a good thing. Because Jerusalem stands between me and Egypt. And if we can have a strong presence in Jerusalem right off the main highway, we're good. Furthermore, I don't have to worry about rebellion because I'm sending my trusted Nehemiah to go do it. Oh, this is win-win. So Nehemiah, afraid of asking the king, little did he know that history was working for Nehemiah and that things were working perfectly for him to go. That's why we call history his story is that it was working perfectly for Nehemiah. So the background, even though Nehemiah may not have had a clue, was just he fell right into God's trap, and he was good to go. So he didn't need to be worried, but he was. And so he gets permission from the king. The king sends Nehemiah off with all of his horses and men and money and authority 
and Nehemiah rides into Canaan, and then into Judah, and then into Jerusalem with the king's flag, with the king's letter, with some of the king's men, with the king's money pouch. Oh yeah, people are listening to Nehemiah. So he rolls in, and he faces some opposition from two men, Sanballat, he is the governor of Samaria, which is just north of Jerusalem, and Tobiah, who, there's debate who he is, but we think he's Sanballat's servant. So these are two, it's kind of like, you know, the cartoons, the big fat boss and then the short little squeaky guy. It's always about <laughs> works in cartoons. Pumon and Tum, uh, Timon and Pumbaa, for example. Um, so they got Sanballat and Tobiah. And he was like, don't, don't come to Jerusalem. Yeah, don't come to Jerusalem. You know how it works. <laughs> so those are those two characters there. Then in chapter 3, Nehemiah musters the people up and they begin to build the wall. It's every man the place, the part of the wall right in front of his house he starts to build, and they're building side by side, and they're getting it all up. So everyone's sweeping under their own rug. And then in chapter 4, we see severe opposition. It comes in two waves. So Sambalot and Tobiah, his little minion, come, and they launch the first um, attack against Nehemiah as they see the wall starting to get built. They ridicule him. Oh, you can't do this. Oh, look at that wall. It's like toothpicks. Oh, it's so cute. Lincoln Logs, we used to do that too. Legos, woo, we can kick through that. And then, you know, they go as far as to say that if a fox walked on that, the whole thing would crumble and just wholly ridiculing them. And then they pray, verses 4 through 5, and they seem to do well because in verse 6, they get the wall to the halfway mark and all the people have a mind to work. But careful, because it's that halfway point is always the hardest point. People dash out of the gate, but somewhere uh, halfway they lose steam or they just lose interest. Well, the enemy makes sure that that happens to Nehemiah, and he launches a second wave of attack. And that's in um, verses 7 all the way to the end of the chapter. There's a conspiracy going on that all of the surrounding nations are going to implode on Jerusalem and slaughter them all to stop the work. And even some of the Jews start to tell Nehemiah, stop working. They're going to kill you. So everyone's going against Nehemiah and his builders. But he tells them to look at God. They keep working. They keep praying. They keep hammering things. They set up an army, and they get the job done eventually, but not in chapter 4 yet. So I think Mike will show us the finish um, next week. But then in chapter 5, in 4 we had external opposition. In 5 we have internal opposition. We have a problem within the builders. And what's happening is the richer people— um, who are, wh what they had to do was they had to pay taxes to the king in Persia. Um, the king of Persia demanded taxes from his satraps, the, the, the over-glorified governors. So they pulled money from the governors under them, and the governors under them pulled money from the people. Money had to go to the governors, and it also had, they had got to keep some. It went to the satraps, they got to keep some, and then it also had to go to the king who needed a lot. So what you had to do is you had to get a lot of money from the people because you're losing a lot of money by the time it finally got to the king of Persia. And the Jews who were in charge of the Jews of building were um, not going easy on their people, even to the point where they're selling, they say they, they have to sell kids. They have to sell their farms. They're mortgaging everything, they say. Um, they're not going easy on them. And Nehemiah says, he calls them over and says, what is wrong with you people? Here, I'm the governor of Jerusalem, and I have denied the salary I'm owed to help our people. And you're just, you're, 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 you're putting interest on what they're borrowing from you. I mean, help them out for crying out loud. We're on the same team. And he kind of rebukes them pretty severely, and they listen. 
to his credit, because Nehemiah gave the example first, giving up his salary, and they this guy's legit. Maybe we should follow him. So that's our overview of the first five chapters. Now, what needs to be addressed is, I think, the pressing need of the entire book. If we're going to follow all the trials and the blessings and everything that happens regarding these walls, the whole reason Nehemiah moved, we need to know why the walls are a big deal. So what are these walls? Um, If you want, flip over to, of course, hold your place here, but I'm going to go to Exodus 34, verse 12. Exodus 34, 12. What the walls were... Yes, they were to protect the city. Yes, they were to protect the temple. But beyond that, the walls were to protect the covenant lifestyle of the Jews. They were to protect the covenant lifestyle of the Jews. God gave them a certain manner of living. It was part of the covenant deal. If you're my people, I want you to act like my people. Here's how I want you to live. And the walls were to protect that manner of lifestyle so that other lifestyles couldn't just walk on in and change their lifestyle. All right, so Exodus 34, verse 12, shows us God's heart in this. He says, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god. For, the, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. (laughs) So in other words, just don't even make friends with your neighbors because they're going to trip you up. On the social Religious level, don't go there. Don't intermarry. It was his way of keeping the covenant and the Jewish people separate for, his, for the sending of the Messiah, for the salvation of the world. They needed to stay separate. And by building the walls, this is what they were going to do. With no walls, you've got all kinds of cultures fluttering in and out. The people, just no really true home. But the walls give them identity. And now Nehemiah 2 verse 20 We're going to see this one more step. Nehemiah 2, verse 20. Um, When Nehemiah first gets to the land, he's immediately greeted by a great welcome party, um, Tobiah and Sanballat, his little master. What are you doing here? Well, we're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Um, Haven't you noticed they're not there? I know, we like it that way. Verse 20, he says to them, Nehemiah, the God of heaven will make us prosper and his, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you, Sambalot and Tobiah, have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Why does he say that? You have no right, no portion, no claim in Jerusalem. 
I think the implication there is that Sambla and Tobiah thought that they did have right claim and portion in Jerusalem. Here they are in the neighboring regions. They see Jerusalem as just a little broken down area, and they think, perfect. We have complete influence in and over this city. There's no one there. They have no strength. And that's the way they wanted it. They wanted more power. They wanted more influence over Jerusalem. But Nehemiah comes on the scene and says, this is not the way it's going to be. You have nothing to do with my God and my people, yet you want to exercise influence over us? No. We're building the wall. That's why I'm here to exclude you, the enemy, and your influence. So by building the wall, Nehemiah decisively excludes Sambalot and his little minion and all the other nations. This is us going to be separate from you, not better than you. That, of course, that mentality developed by Jesus' time. It evolved into that. But this was a pure-hearted motive here to keep God as their God. Why did they get into captivity in the first place? Because they mixed. But this time, they're going to build the walls. Nehemiah is saying, nobody has right or claim here. There's no influence apart from Yahweh. This is our turf. So here come the walls. That's why we're here. So that's the walls. So the reason we're following walls in this book is because the walls produce God's glory through their separation. Their sanctification being set apart from the other cultures, being just God's people, is going to produce his glorification. That's why the walls. Now let me touch on those two points. All right, the walls are for his glorification through their sanctification or their separation. How do the walls speak of God's glorification? So what, what, what am I saying? Am I saying that in chapter 1, when Nehemiah learns that the walls are broken down, he sees this as a sad reflection of God's glory? Yes. Yes. Nehemiah, when he hears of Jerusalem and ruins, sees this as a poor reflection of God's glory. And because God is having a poor reflection here on earth, he has a heart to fix this. I have to go fix this. Our God can't be resembled like this. How am I getting to this conclusion? Let's look at his prayer in chapter 1, particularly verse 9. Actually, let's go ahead and start in verse 8. He says there, he's praying to God, and now he's pleading God's promises. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy, the whole section of 28 through 30 is all about, this will happen to you, curses, if you disobey, but these blessings will come if you obey. So he's pulling from that section of scripture. And so it's kind of sporadically quoting, so I'm not even going to bother giving you all the references. But he says, um, so you said to Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, as they were, I will scatter you among the peoples, as they presently are. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them. Now I stop there because he now quotes out of a totally different part of Scripture. He's now going to quote from Deuteronomy 12.5, which is a far cry from Deuteronomy 28 and 30. <laughs> it's going from one end of the book to the other end. Why does he do this? Read what it says, okay? It says, I will gather them and bring them 
to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So God, you promised that you'll bring us back to the place where you choose your name to dwell. Let me share with you a little bit of the context there of Deuteronomy 12.5. God is telling them, when you get to Canaan, destroy everything. Every little idol you find, smash it. I want you to erase every memory of a former culture being there possible. Why? Because Deuteronomy 12.3 says, destroy their name out of this place. Then 12.5 says, the reason to destroy their name is because God wants to find a place to put his name there and make it his habitation. So they get to Canaan. They were to destroy the name of every other culture. Why? So that God can establish his name at a chosen spot. What is that chosen spot? Because we're dealing with the whole promised land at this point. That's later revealed to us in Second Chronicles when Solomon is dedicating the temple in Second Chronicles 6. He says, he says, God told David, my father, this. Second Chronicles 6, 5. Since that day that I brought my people out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And I chose no man to be prince over my people Israel. In other words, when you first got to the promised land, there was no city, no place for my name to be. Why? They were initially supposed to destroy their name, the names of the cultures out of the place. Then, in verse 6, but now... As he's dedicating the temple, he says, But now I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So, you see that Jerusalem is the place that God chose to put his name. And Nehemiah here is praying, Oh God, you, you promised that if we return to you, you will bring us back to the place of your name. What's that? Jerusalem. And he hears that Jerusalem is a heap of rubble. This is the place of God's name? In the Bible, name and glory go hand in hand. When God speaks of his name, he's speaking of his glory. So to hear that the place of God's name is a heap of rubble is to basically say, that's their God. <laughs> Nehemiah's heart's breaking, saying, how can this be that our God is not glorified as he ought to be? So he prays, Lord, send me to fix this. And it was definitely God's will because he granted it to him. Jesus told us in John chapter 14, if you pray for anything according to what? My name, I will do it. That, he finishes, that the Father may be glorified. Nehemiah wanted to go fix the walls because God's glory is in rubble. And it was granted to him because he prayed according to his name. For his name's sake, in other words. For his glory. And God granted it to him and sent him to fix that situation. Um, also look at 2.17. That the walls resemble God's glory. He says to, this is when he just gets to Jerusalem. He looks at the people and he says, let's get to work. I've got a plan. We're going to build the walls for his glory. 
So he says, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? See if this rings a bell here. This is eerily echoing another passage. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. <laughs> come, let us build are the first words of Nimrod in Genesis 11 when he says to those people, come, let us build, but that's when the words veer off. Nimrod has to say to those people, it's uh, Genesis 11.4, said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, so a city has walls too, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and here's their purpose for doing so. Let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, let's be glorified through our work. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. <laughs> so come, let us build for ourselves a city to resemble our glory. Well, what does Nehemiah say to these people? He says, come, let us build, not for ourselves, just come, let us build Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Why are they suffering derision? Because God's glory is in rambles, shambles, rubble, whatever the word. It's lying there on the floor. They're in derision because his glory is in derision. And, and this is coming out of verse 18 because he, he talks to them. And rather than saying, let us make for ourselves a name, he tells them about how God has moved him to do this. Nehemiah is all about God in this passage. Come, let us build Jerusalem for his glory. And maybe Nehemiah, or excuse me, Ezra, or whoever words we're writing or looking at, maybe he had Babylon in mind when he said, come, let us build. Because here's the contrast. They went for their glory. Nehemiah's going for God's glory. So the walls here resemble his glory. They must be built up. Um, one last point to prove that the walls are resembling his glory is in verse 20 again. It says there, the God of heaven shall make us prosper so note that, God of heaven, note prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. Note servants. God of heaven, prosper servants. The reason I point out those three words is because those three words were in his prayer that started off this whole section of scripture. God of heavens in verse 5 where he prays, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome. And then in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And servant was also mentioned two other times in the prayer. And then he goes on to the bottom and says, give success to your servant today. Or in other words, let me prosper. Why do I point that out? Because this section of the narrative is bracketed by the God of heaven letting his servants prosper, beginning in the prayer. God of heaven is going to let his servants prosper, saying that to the enemy. In other words, Nehemiah is saying, this is my purpose for being here. The God of heaven is going to let his servants prosper bracketing a whole section showing it's the God of heaven letting servants prosper showing this is all for him. There's no man motive behind this. It's God's glory going through this. So the author brackets the section by showing us that it's all about him. So the walls have to be built because God's glory must be elevated. It must be lifted up. A true reflection of who he is, not what it presently lies as. So the walls are God's glorification through their sanctification. We've touched on glorification. What about the sanctification part? 
I've already described here how um, the walls are going to keep them separate from other cultures, that being their sanctification or their separation. And that's, that's very clear. It's going to keep their covenant way of life separate and unperturbed by other perverted nations. But let's take this one step further and say that God's glorification comes through our sanctification too. And that's what the walls resemble for us as a church this evening, is that we need walls built up for our purity, for our separation from the world's methods and ways and sins, and for our sanctification. We need these walls so that we can be sanctified and He glorified. Proverbs 25, 28. Uh, Solomon's talking about the, a man that has no self-control. He says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control, in short, is like a man or is like a city without walls. A city without walls, well, any enemy can just walk right on in with little resistance, with little hindrance. And a man without self-control, Solomon says, is like a city without walls. Anything can wander into his life. Here, have your fifth beer bottle tonight. No self-control says, all right, come in my way, let it in. No self-control, no sanctification, just getting drunk because of your lack of self-control. Anywhere you go down the line, when it comes to food, it turns into gluttony without self-control. So walls in the Christian's life are going to develop that self-control. They're going to develop parameters of sanctification. It's going to put up a guard against the enemy so nothing just wanders in. We say we're separate from the world. We follow God. We follow his commands. We love and worship him. So here are these walls to protect us and to keep us set apart and thus to glorify him. So in short, the purpose of the walls, we say that it's, it's therefore God's glorification through our sanctification. You can say, in other words, when I'm holy, I give him glory. When I'm sanctified, he's glorified. It's the bottom line. So then we as a church, as individuals as well, need to do the work of Nehemiah and build walls. So let me finish tonight with um, three, how, how do we, let's, we're going to call it the work of walls. That's what Nehemiah did. He went to Jerusalem for the work of walls. And we're seeing that it's for God's glory through their sanctification. How do we do the work of walls like Nehemiah? As we're sitting here, how do we tomorrow start to build walls? I'll give you guys three ways. The first is that the work of walls starts in the home. The work of walls, building walls, starts in your home. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 uses the word house 12 times. The word house refers to either the family or the physical home people live in. So no doubt there is a focus here on the home in chapter 3. This is where the work began. Four times, it says a phrase either exactly or similar to, so-and-so repaired the wall opposite his house. In other words, the part of the wall they worked on was the one right out their front door. So the work of building walls began in the home in chapter 3. So let me show you in, chapter, in verse 10. Next to them, Jedediah, the son of um, Harahamaph, repaired opposite his house. 
verse 23. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. Verse 29. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. So there you have those references to the fact that people were working in their house. And that's where the work of walls begins for us. Um, having the, at sometimes a disheartening role of, um, you know, teaching youth is to see that this first step never happens. There are no walls of God's glory through our purity going on in homes. Not at least on the scale we want to see it. We have the hindrance of hypocrisy. How many students um, I see that just cannot get their faith in Jesus because the example at the home never puts their faith in Jesus. I mean, what's, wh- the, one of the curses about youth groups, because really the idea of a youth group is a modern evolution in the church. One of the problems of what we've now done in the church with these specialized age groups is we've, kinda, we've divided the family to their age groups and we've given the mentality to the church to say, hey, here's my kid, you teach him about God. And then we just go to the home and we do whatever we do. Entertainment, or God's really brought in, that's the youth pastor's job. And so what we have is kids being told by some stranger, you should worship God. And they go home and dad never shows them or tells them. The person that they should hear it from, the person they trust. And so what we have is they will see parents in church being all Christianese and stuff and worshiping God. And at home, it's not really the same. And unless the two are consistent, what they're going to see is hypocrisy. Oh, they're one thing there, but not here. So what the church becomes is a stage for parents to play out their own hypocrisy before their children under the illumination of the house. Because it reveals what they truly are at the house, but on the church, they are on the stage for their kids to see their hypocrisy. It's got to start in the home. What about divorce? I've never seen divorce create doubt in someone's faith like anything else. Mom and dad are supposed to love each other, but then they don't. And what is their security breaks down. How can they see that? And then we tell them the love of Christ abides in the Christian so that we can love each other as Jesus loved us. And then they see the two people who are supposed to be that example of love not doing it. And then they take them to church and say, love God because God loves you and his love's going to abide in you. And they look at you and say, it didn't happen for you. I'm really doubting this Christian thing. I don't think it's legit. Now, you know, I, in a room this size, I'm sure there's people that have gone through the divorce, and they have kids that have reaped the um, foul fruits of such a thing. And I'm, I'm not here to, like, you know, let you go home with a severe headache about the divorce you did in the past. Rather, we're looking at today. This is our new start. You know, what's in the past is in the past. We can't do a thing about that. But from here on out, we can be devoted to wherever God's given us people to love. We're going to love them as Jesus sacrificially and generously, generously gave of himself. We're going to love them the same way. 
So if you've had that in the past, don't go home with a splitting headache. <laughs> go home with determination that you're going to start in the home. The wall building is going to start in the home tonight. So that's the first way to do the work of the walls. The second way is to extend the work of walls to unified fellowship. Extend it to each other. All right, when we talk about walls, what we normally think about is a bad thing. We put up walls between each other. Oh, we don't like them, so put up a wall. People that put, build walls, we generally refer to those as the recluses, um, the you know, introverted. They don't really want to let people into their world, so they hide behind their castle. Negative connotation there. Same idea, but we're not dealing with a wall between people. We're dealing with a wall between spiritual battles. The Christians are in the wall so that the world doesn't influence them. But this is why the work of walls must be extended in unified fellowship, lest we do become these isolated little castles. As we're building our walls of sanctification for his glory, we're extending to one another. Just as in chapter 3, they worked side by side. He went down the list clockwise around the walls of Jerusalem. They did it together. So rather than having all these individual walls around here with all these gaps for the enemy run through, we're reaching out in faith. We're reaching out in fellowship. We're reaching out in unity and in love. And my wall is being connected with your wall. Then we have a bigger wall. And so as we individually go for our sanctification— and include the body of Christ, we're actually building the wall of the church at the same time. So in chapter 4, we see this, verse 10. In Judah it was said, so there's some discouragement going on, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. Then they admit this, by ourselves we are not able to build the wall. Yes, exactly. You can't do it by yourself, Nehemiah. I want to jump in and say, so what we need is people who recognize, we can't build the wall, just me. It's too much work. I can't do it. I need the brothers and sisters to help me in my sanctification, in my separation, in my purity, in my holiness. I need the help. So we need individuals who have a mind to work with others, as happened in verse 6. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. That's unity. That's the reaching across and helping each other build the wall. And then furthermore, in verse 13, still chapter 4. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places where there are gaps, Nehemiah says, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I filled in the holes by reaching people to people, sending them there. So... The work of walls starts in the home, it extends in unified fellowship, and finally, it overcomes opposition in prayer. The work of walls overcomes opposition in prayer, because trust the word here, that if you go out like Nehemiah and build walls, you're going to find Sambalot and his little minions ridiculing, conspirizing, discouraging, bringing fear into you. So we see this too in chapter 4. Nehemiah, that he was a man of prayer, is no question. Um, four times just in our five chapters, we see direct prayers from him, let alone who knows how much he prayed on, this, on his own. When he was observing the city at night by himself in chapter 2, guaranteed he was praying then. But we have four specific references in our section 
no doubt that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And he wanted his people to be too. But when the first wave of opposition came, verse 4, chapter 4 says, they prayed, Hear, O God, or hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. <laughs> Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You know, they were a little bit um, feeling the heat at that moment when they prayed. But they prayed is the point. We've we got to pray. In the face of reproach and opposition, we have to approach God in prayer. In the reproach of opposition, we have to approach God in prayer. And that's what they do. The reproach of opposition comes, and then <laughs> approach God in prayer, and it gives them strength. Then the second wave comes. It's like, okay, that was an easy one. But the enemy learns. He's going to come even harder. He's going to start to use the people inside, the Jews around them, to start to give them bad reports. Like in um, verse 12, At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. That phrase, we have no idea what it means in Hebrew. Other translations will say, if you keep working, they're going to beat you up. Loose paraphrase. So the point, though, is they were trying to discourage them ten times as a Hebrew idiom for saying many times. Over and over, they kept saying, stop working, stop working. Who was this saying this? Jews. What Jews? It says, the ones who lived near them. Who's them? The enemies conspirizing against them. The ones who lived nearest to the enemy told them to stop building walls. So when you begin to build your wall of sanctification, you're, you're closing in the gaps where Satan's bringing temptation into your life and sins that you're holding on to, you've you're got your wall fortified. It's, it's getting strong. It's getting big. Then you begin to have some of your fellow friends tell you, oh, what do you think you're doing? You know you're going to get beat up if you do this. You know everyone's talking about you, what a geek you are for your whole radicalism. Hey, will you hear that? Remember that it's because they live nearest to the enemy. They're the ones who live near them. They're, that's why they're telling you, slow down, Mr. Radical. Keep building the wall like Nehemiah did. All right, so here's how prayer works. Prayer says, I can't do it. That's what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says, by ourselves, we are unable to rebuild the wall. Yes, that means we need our friends to help, but I think furthermore, it means we need God to help. <laughs> They're discouraged at this point. They say, well, everyone's telling us to quit. We can't do it. We need help. We can't do this by ourselves. And great place to be if you're looking in the right place. Nehemiah would have them now say, exactly, let's pray. Look up to God. That's the point of prayer. Prayer says, I can't do it. And Jesus said, you're right. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. <laughs> so prayer is the admission of John 15, 5. is right. Apart from you, I can't do anything. So Lord, I ask for your power to move in my life. The aim of prayer is for his glory through my humility. My humility being, I can't do it. We can't do this on our own. So when I pray, I'm putting him to work. And I'm thus glorifying him as I do so. As the wall's being built through his help, I'm glorifying him. So they, they need that prayer. Um, you know, their building the walls is not them working for God. 
They were learning rather to let God work for them. We can't do it. We don't work for God. God doesn't have needs. We have needs. He works for us. So when we go start our wall building, we need prayer to overcome the opposition because we need him to help us. When it comes to needs, he has none. I have a ton. <laughs> so let's learn to pray and say, God, help us. You work for us because <laughs> there's nothing we can give to you through our work. So help us here. So, all right. So where the prayer helps is it helps us to see God at work. And I'm going to show you um, very briefly here in a chiastic form how Nehemiah wants to portray this, and then it'll be over. Um, what we have in verses 7 through 23 is that second wave of attack. And it starts off with Jerusalem being threatened in verses 7 and 9. But then it's going to end in verse 22 and 23 by saying Jerusalem is defended. All right? So at the corners, at the ends of this passage, Jerusalem's threatened, but then Jerusalem's defended. Now, as a chiasm works, you start moving into the center. So we're going to move in one more step. So the next step, we're going to talk about the work on the wall. Verses 10 through 12, we've looked at. There's discouragement. There's discouragement and fear. But then by verse 21... The work on the wall is doing good. It says, we labored on the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. We worked till we had to stop. That's perseverance. That's confidence. So they went from being discouraged and fearful to having confidence in their work. From Jerusalem being threatened to Jerusalem being defended. Then look at verses 13 and 12. We see encouragement from Nehemiah to trust in God's strength. Um, I want to put your attention to the middle of verse 14 where he begins to talk to them. He says, Do not be afraid of them, your enemies. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. Remember God. Look up to him. It's a point of prayer. It's us looking up to him for needs. So look up to him. And then his um, next part of the encouragement in verse 19 and 20. We see there at the very end of verse 20, the last sentence, he says, our God will fight for us. So look up to him, and then he concludes, our God will fight for us. All right, so now there's this middle part we're going to look for that has shifted everything. Jerusalem's defended, something happens, and now, or Jerusalem's threatened, something happens, now it's defended. Um, they're fearful in the work, they're discouraged, but then all of a sudden, they're working confidently and with perseverance. What happened? And then we see that Nehemiah is saying, remember the Lord, and then all of a sudden, he's saying with more confidence, God will fight for us. What happened? Verse 15 happened. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, their plot was known to us, and that God has frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. What does that say? God delivered them. God stepped in and worked supernaturally for them. And what happens is they're threatened, they're fearful. Nehemiah saying, remember the Lord. And as they do, he steps in and acts. And then the rest is downhill from there because they look at that act and they put their faith in that. And they can say, yes, God will fight for us. We can keep on trucking. We can keep on working till the stars come out because God's going to fight for us. We've got Jerusalem defended with no fear because God will fight for us because we saw him intercede and foil their plot. 
That's the value of seeing God work, and that's the value of prayer is that it shows us his work because we ask for it and we see it. Otherwise, you're just going to think it's a coincidence. So the work of walls. We need walls because they are God's glorification through our sanctification. The walls help protect us from sin and temptations and from mingling with the world. It keeps us separate and under his glory. And the way to build these walls, the work of it, is it has to start in the home. And it has to then extend to unified fellowship. And then it will overcome opposition through prayer. And thus we'll have walls erected strong, sturdy, um, our purity, and then God's glory. And we're going to be a church with great walls. And people will see the walls and say, that is a city of refuge. And that's where the unsaved will go. So, God, forgive us that our walls are often in shambles and rambles. I don't even know if rambles is a word, but it rhymes. They're in shambles and rubble. Um, God, forgive us. And may we be a church. Let us be individuals. Let this mountain be a church that, like Nehemiah's in our midst, we rise up. We started in the home. We reach to others, and we start to pray, God, we need our walls restored for your glory's sake. So Lord, it's our prayer that that would happen. I know that there's a lot of 